0: This is the Atlanta Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are fresh off the ATA trail and back in the studio, if you will. The makeshift studio. The makeshift studio. And we're back at Adam's house, my house. And we are ready to start talking about some habitat management, hunting strategy, Um, And we're not doing product review because I feel like everybody else is doing that. I I feel like social media is blown up with product reviews right now. It's like, guys, I've seen this before. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So here's a long list of the new items that you can use in habitat management that were shown at the ATA. And that's all, folks. (laughs) um, So Matt and I have been discussing different things, different topics. Of course, we love all your guys' input um, and ideas and things that you would like us to cover here on the podcast, and one of them that always comes up is managing property on a budget, but before we get into that, let's just remind you that this is on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, wherever you're listening, whether it be Stitcher, iTunes, Google, whatever it is, please leave us a review if you like it, give us a... Star, thumbs up, thumbs up, a like, a wherever share. it's at, a share, please just continue to share it with your friends. That's how we grow and get this thing going to more people and more Habitat improved. That's what it's all about. Matt, anything else before we start jumping into this? No, because we we haven't avoided this at all. We, we often
1: share these similar practices, but we don't necessarily title it. You know cost-effective habitat management and you know we've shared our story of kind of where we come from and and uh, how applicable this was for us growing up and always wanting to do something to better our hunting and do something to better the habitat but you know just because you're 30 and i'm 26 doesn't mean that we still don't do these practices and we do them and prescribe them and recommend them all across the country and clients properties but there's so many folks out there who are hungry for this information because they can get out there and do it and use it, and it makes a big impact. So I'm happy. I'm excited to be able to share it, and hopefully, you know, if you're out there and it's – whether you're you're just starting to get into habitat management and don't want to dump a bunch of money and just kind of, you know, work your way in there, these are the things that are c- – can create a huge impact for your property,
0: and I'm excited to get out there and share them. Let's just go ahead and say it. This is the podcast to avoid divorce. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think for for myself, I'll probably speak for both of us, but growing up and managing and trying to do everything we could on a budget, it's almost like regardless of however far successful uh, we get in life, we're managing with on a budget is so ingrained in us that I don't think it's ever going to change and and it doesn't matter if it's on our own turf or our client's turf and we get there and they're like what about this I honest, I automatically start thinking dollar signs how much is that going to cost is the juice worth the squeeze you know as we kind of opened up the show
1: I was like you know what I'm not going to go there but I actually I am going to go there um with with the whole topic of products and stuff like this you know what we're going to share today isn't like a product-based thing, period. It's more of, okay, nature goes through these processes. How can we kind of tap in and harness the natural process that's going to happen and make a, a huge bang for the buck versus spending that buck? Mm-hmm. And why why would I not just use this resource that has shown us year in and year out that these things are going to happen and deer are going to use them and wildlife are going to use them to their advantage. So why not use that resource and save money and that of spending money on gimmicks and marketing dollars and blah, blah, blah. Like let's just get to the root of it and, and, and work with mother nature in a right way. That's going to make a huge
0: improvement for your property. So that's what we're sharing. Nature in its, <laughs> this sounds stupid, but nature in its natural setting is the most well-oiled machine Ugh. you can find. Yes, but through time and lack of management, we've stepped away from that and put her in a, in a bind with invasive species, lack of natural management, and that may be prescribed fire or large herbivores um, in the setting. Or across the landscape, and now it's we've removed both of those in a lot of instances to where the introduction of invasive species and everything we just put disrupting it in a bind. that natural cycle,
1: whatever it may be, or
0: we've stopped letting the food chain run its course, and uh, we've let some species get out of control or overpopulated, um, and therefore they consume more of the native habitat. Uh, maybe it's a couple plants or whatever it is, but um, Through it all, basically in big picture, we've removed the natural cycle cycle of nature. We've disrupted it. Yeah, for sure. So a lot of these techniques are, or every technique that we do is usually trying to just replicate what occurred before settlement and also what just occurs naturally as we progress through time. So anyway... Matt, let's, let's do it. Let's you've dive got the in. notes. Let's roll it.
1: Number one, you know, there there's I don't know, I think it's just a kind of a craze back in the nineties, early two thousands of um planting native warm season grasses and like just converting, you know, crop fields or, or or other, you know, types of field, pasture fields, and planting native warm season grasses and there's nothing wrong with that.
0: Uh, I absolutely, before we do this one. I just want to say we absolutely love native grasses. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. The prairie habit or the prairie ecosystem is one of the the one that you're just gets about efficiency. Me, Woo. Yeah. You want to see me get diversity. You want to see Woo. me nerd out. Let's just say, show me a native prairie, and I will nerd out on you um, and talk about all the different species. The problem, and I think this is where you're going, or it's in the notes, or maybe not. Let's just I'm go over here, but. Um, the problem with some of our native grass plantings is we only plant five species in that mix. So we have five species across that uh, area, um, and some of those aren't the best, or there's, or it's lacking some of my favorite ones of the native grass um, species. And so it's important that if we are doing that, we plant lots of different species in that mix. But with fortunately with that
1: comes a very large bill. Yeah. And the reason for that is because it is so rare. Like we don't have the native grasses the prairies like we did way back when. So getting seed harnessing seed is more expensive and it you have to pay to play the game with native warm season grasses. And there's of course government programs out there that help offset cost of stuff. And then you got to factor in the drill, running a drill um attractor, the high price of seed, all that preparation um, herbicide that goes into preparing just to plant that native warm season grasses. Again, multiple,
0: is, multiple. before you forget that, or before you move past that, multiple treatments of herbicide. Yes. And then it takes years, years. to get established. And when we say years, three to four years before it actually is fully uh, established um, under the right circumstances, rainfall, drought, et cetera. Again, there's nothing wrong with this process.
1: However, an alternative that will produce similar results and save you some money is just converting those fields, whatever it may have been, into old field and managing old field style. And what that is is basically letting that native seed bank, whatever is in that ground, come back out. And you're just managing that and and looking, identifying what species come back, maybe there is some herbicide treatments throughout, but usually it's a kind of a spot treatment. It's not an overall, you know, I'm treating my tw- this 20-acre field. It's spot here or spot here and selecting the species that you want to basically make seed and grow. And that seed bank in some places has absolutely shocked us as like, holy cow, I I didn't know this was here or... Man, would you look? I mean, we've got this. We got that. We got this. Oh, and it I thought produces, you were say, "Would you look at that?" Oh, uh, would ya look at that? But it, it's crazy to see. Wow, that seed survived, however many years in that seed bank, and all we did was just get it to a situation or a, an environment in which it could express itself. And that, and let's go let's go to a pasture. If if we have a pasture.
0: All it is is spraying out the fescue. A pasture of fescue. Let's just or say smooth cool, se- cool yeah. season mixes. So there's orchard grass and fescue. Step number one is going to be spraying that grass with a herbicide during a specific time of the year when the when the natives are dormant. So a lot of times that's in the fall, uh, November, or and of course this is wherever your area is. Basically, when that cool season grass is the only thing green. Or in the spring. So in our area, it's March through April. And you're spraying
1: it. And it's and that herbicide treatment is not that expensive. We've done it. We've prescribed it on clients' properties. And you can cover a large area and do that, kill that cool season grass. And then that next spring, boom, immediately you're getting growth of that native seed bank because it's not competing or trapped or blocked by that cool season grass so you're getting those native species back instead of planting them in the native warm season grass mixtures like we talked about earlier and paying for them you're seeing basically okay what's left in my soil what's left in the seed bank letting it grow and if you have you know there's always going to be some you know most likely invasives that come up or you know less desirable species you just go in you treat them each year spot treat them and move on But within a year, you can have great cover produced by your native seed bank.
0: Absolutely. And for me, when you think about that, whenever you do this just old field management, you get a lot of times you're going to get much more diversity in that growth versus planting just a straight native grass mix. And then, because, I mean, we saw it two weeks ago on a client's property. Um, traveling down the road through the property, and you look in and you see this just kind of mix of native grasses and shrubs and different species, and you're like, "Wow, that's that's that looks really good right there." And then you come to a big flat area that's native grasses, but you look and it it's almost all big blue any grass and a little bit of little blue, and you're like, "That was planted because it's completely grass. Mm-hmm. There's and- no Forbes mixed in." With no. those grasses and for for you for you deer guys, that's just basically food for the deer. <laughs> Broadleaf plants, yeah. And so that's kind of the the biggest difference in in native grasses versus old field management. And uh...
1: and what you know, if you want those forbs mixed in, again, like we said, you gotta you gotta pay for them to be in that mixture, and they get expensive. So why not let your seed
0: bank express itself and see, man. There's two reasons why. You mentioned one, but the other one, why forbs or when you think about like butterfly milkweed and why it's so expensive, you're like, how? Well, we don't have typically huge fields of butterfly milkweed and we just run a combine through there and harvest the seeds. A lot of these native forbs or wildflowers that you think of are picked in prairie settings. and. And so that's why it gets so cost effective, is they have to hand pick, and a lot of the flowers or the, a lot of the seeds are like little floaty uh, wind. They're drifts. carried by the, yeah, they're carried and by the wind. So it takes a lot of seed to amount to a pound. So a lot of a,
1: effort to get that seed into a bag that you can plant.
0: Yes, so that's why it gets so expensive.
1: But anyway, um, so a lot of times we see if you're doing the old field, your forb production, especially within the first year, is really good. Like. You have a quite a bit of food that can be grown just by that native seed bank. And, you know, we're going we're to kind of flip side here. There's other options with native warm season grasses. Let's say you do go down that route or that route you bought a place and you have the native warm season grasses already in place. What are some of the options that you can do to make money with those native warm season grasses? Uh-oh! This is a can of worms right here. We're gonna open it though. Oh, I'm I'm happy to open it. Happy to. And of course, if you're in CRP ground, you know, make sure your regulations you can do this within the program.
0: But. Or you, not just CRP, but it's it's uh, whatever na- government program. Yeah, you if might you're be in it. a government program with with your native grass stand, it's important to check the regulations, see if you could do this. But when you think about a beautiful stand of native grasses, I automatically think, wow, because this comes from my cattle roots growing up on a cattle farm, I think, wow, that's some incredible grazing for some cows. That's potential right there. Especially during the summer months. That's where it gets its that's where it can be huge, hugely beneficial to the cattle. So, if you haven't figured it out by now, when we're talking about other ways to make income on your native grass stands, it's leasing out grazing rights. Whoa, what just happened? Did he just... Did you say cows? Is this a hunting podcast and some guy's promoting cattle. grazing and cows? Oh, oh. Yes, of course we are. If you haven't figured it out by now, we're more natural, natural ecosystem. Well, it, it just goes back to
1: a multi-use property. How, there's so many more of those out there we've got to address the fact that hey we can actually use cattle to benefit the property and and make some income for you that if you want to dump back into hunting or want to dap- dump back into habitat management hey here's an option you can do this yep. let's not let's not just say this is this is the only uh, the only possibility i can do for my farm and and you know don't just sell yourself short and sell your farm short of its possibilities let's let's branch out there think outside the box and say Let me actually just use the cattle. Let me feed them with these warm season grasses. Again, if if you're in a program, if you can do that, or if you're not, you just have them. Man, you can do it if you have cattle or rent out that land to a cattle farmer.
0: Yeah. It's It's that simple. And we talked about it earlier, and we've talked about it on multiple podcasts, but we're trying to replicate nature, work with her, not against her. And historically speaking, large herbivores were across the landscape. And so by that, we usually mean buffalo elk, but now we don't have that option. So cattle is our best option. And so it's better for the soil and it's better for the animals too. A lot of research suggests that cattle in these native grass situations are more beneficial to species like the Northern Bobwhite quail.
1: Right. Not to mention the, the, the cattle gains off of warm season grasses versus, versus, a uh, Endophyte, full fescue. You you have. (laughs) I know that's a that's a whole different podcast. But the gains a cow can get off of warm season grasses during summer months is much better than fescue with endophytes. So there's a big potential right there. Yes, absolutely for healthier cattle. And again, I don't want people to think that. Oh my gosh, they're they're letting cattle into the warm season grasses. They're just going to mow it down. No, this is a practice that needs to be managed. We're not saying go in and consume all the warm season grasses. It's a, you know, we've talked about before rotational grazing. It's kind of a, okay, think of your grass or your, your tonnage that you have there. All you're doing is really consuming one-third and moving on. One-third and, rem- and the other two-thirds are trampled. Trampled and boom, kick back, and they, recycle, yes. and, and you have a healthier, productive Uh, ecosystem in those grasses so we're not talking about just mowing it down lip high kind of deal that's that's not what we're saying think of it as consuming a third trampling and moving on quickly
0: through these areas think of a a herd of cows whatever a, a bigger herd of cows on one acre for a day and then they move to the next acre and then the next acre the third day and the next acre and so by doing that um uh, and then you're removing them in let's just say August that still gives the native grass plenty of time to regroup, grow and provide fantastic bedding for the rest of the wildlife throughout the fall and winter. Uh and when you think about for, Matt mentioned it but gains you're not really you're not going to find a better forage during the summer months for your cows than native grasses. Native summer basically these are summer perennial grasses that are growing, providing fantastic forage, while fescue is providing endophytes and and going dormant. If
1: you really want to sit back and, and just scratch your head on something, go and research endophytes and fescue, and then think about the summertime and why so many fields across the country are devoted to fescue. Just just research it. I'm not even going to mention it anymore. But just research it and think about it for a second, and you'll be like, "What? I didn't even know that." Yeah, it's not publicized that much. There's research on it, good research on it. But just go and look, educate yourself. You'll sit there and scratch your head, and be like, "I I don't understand this." But
0: whatever. And for ex- and so this this whole idea is exactly what we're in the process of doing on my family farm and the home base of trying to get this broke up instead of being straight cool season pastures of fescue and orchard grass but going back to these rougher areas where we can plant native grasses and in some instances just spray off the fescue and let the native grasses come back to where we have pretty much it's it's not just think of it like this these areas of native grasses are now going to be designated bedding areas um, but we're going to have some of the best grazing during the summer months. So we're going to have... I, I I scratch my head and go, how are we not using this practice more throughout the landscape? And when you think of, for me, growing up, Matt, it's a little different for you, but growing up for me, it was always the Flynn Hills, the Flynn Hills, the mm-hmm. Flynn Hills, because it's all native grass, it's pretty much native prairie. And we put so many cows on it during the summer months and graze that because we get fantastic gains on the cows throughout the summer and then as soon as fall hits the cows are shipped out of there and then we see these pictures of giant deer that get killed in these areas and it's just basically we're trying to replicate that um, on a small scale here in the ozarks and and one of the other factors is that you know
1: a lot of these rougher areas were warm season grasses high for production had fire run through them it's just returning that state and then u- utilizing cattle to improve to 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 feed them off of you no know, non endophytes, you know feed um, during the summer months get gains that they wouldn't otherwise see, and then it helps the wildlife. It it it's just a process or an option for people to use instead of
0: going with the status quo. Yeah. For us, and this is something we're trying to do on the family farm, but we're actually, and here's a short story on my life. When I was growing up, it was like, I can't wait to have the family farm and kick the cows out. But now I've come to the realization that I'm actually looking to add more acres of grazing, but it's going to be grazed at a specific time of the year, and the rest of the time of the year it's going to be left to the wildlife to do their thing. And so instead of having closed canopy forests, And then open pasture of fescue, we're going to have a mix of, let's just say, pasture of native grasses and forbs and shrubs. And then we're going to have woodlands and savannas that we can also graze at specific times of the year. And then we'll have our areas of cool season mixes. Instead of just having two things, we'll have four things to graze. And that also means better areas devoted to wildlife. So, so,
1: in a nutshell, if you have native warm season grasses and you can get by with it, doesn't break any um, guidelines or anything, graze them. There's probably a farmer out there who would say, yeah, I'd put cattle in there for a little bit, but it has to be in a managed way, get some income, and then devote that back to the property. Because you, you wouldn't have otherwise had that income there, so might as well put it back in the property and maybe use some of these other techniques that we're going to get ready to talk about.
0: But first... How how do you... well? They're sitting there going, how do I find the, the right guy who's going to come in and actually graze it the correct way and not graze my native grasses into the into the ground? One of the best ways you can probably find that is going to your local NRCS or Soil and Water um, office and talking to them about some of the guys that are entered into these programs that have native grasses and are understanding rotational grazing, and then get their number from them or... Just find out their name and contact the man and go see his operation. See if it's what you're looking for, and, and uh, start from there.
1: And one of the uh, one of our clients, we've actually prescribed this very thing on his property. He is in Oklahoma, and a lot of the property it was it was a large one. They had they had both cattle and wanted it to be a, a great place for recreation for their family, but cattle was a very large portion of their property. And at this time, they only had. Uh, I don't know how many acres of pasture, but they had the potential to increase the amount of tons that that property produced for the cattle. And all they had to do was go in and cut cedars and use prescribed fire through those areas. And they're going to have incredible areas of native warm season grasses and forbs that the cattle are going to move through quickly and on a rotation throughout the summer months. And they gonna get pulled off the pasture and then that's a lot of a lot of area for deer to be bedding and using during the winter months. So this is this is for real. People are doing this and and excited about it because otherwise it was just cedar kind of thickets and random openings in the woods. They didn't know how to hunt it. They were afraid to go in there. But now it's going to be income producing. And improve the hunting, so it's a win win for them in their instance
0: it's the whole holistic approach that people are talking about that you see um across the country. People are trying to get back to um, whole foods is kind of organic and grass fed beef, so they're trying to rotate the cows and keep them to where they don't have to feed hay and do all these other feed grain and um and as their people are starting to do this, they're realizing how fantastic it is for the wildlife and how they're seeing more quail and everything like that so it's just a new approach, uh, a new management technique that is really catching on and and hopefully more and more people are doing it. Next is that pretty well now, I beat think that... the beat the native grass old field dead horse right there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: But that's a it's an incredible opportunity for a property if you find yourself in that situation. But next we're going to dive into options for food plots that can save you money over time and and a couple of key tips that okay, hey you know, longevity of the food plot. We're gonna we're gonna recommend that you do this each year to these plots and and you will see a better stand year after year after year. And now we're comparing comparing perennials versus annual crops for food plots.
0: And I'll just say it. I think this I would I would put a lot of money in betting, not that I'm a big gambler or a gambler at all, but I would bet that a large across the landscape or across the country that a majority of the money that people have for their management on their farm, and I say management in air quotes there, um, that the the amount of money that they can spend on their farm is put into food plots. No, 100%. It's not put into TSI programs or anything like native grass well, programs. Or, or mineral blocks. Or mineral <laughs> blocks. It's Let's let's there's three things that people are going to spend their money on most food plots, mineral blocks or feed. Yeah. And that's about it. Uh, That that to me is like well, trail
1: trail cameras to monitor that too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. For sure. And so this is one of those things that and I know this wholeheartedly that there comes times where you're like food plots are just so expensive. I don't know if I can afford planting them this year. Mm-hmm. and so there are other options
1: and when we're talking about other options we're saying okay instead of instead of planting twice a year on a on a given food plot and that would be a spring annual mix or a spring crop and then going back in and planting during the fall that's two times you have to pay for seed what if we devote more acreage to perennials which come back each year and manage those in a way that will save you money, save you time, and still produce a great crop throughout an entire growing season. So I think if we if we look at those numbers, you're gonna see, okay, I'm I'm spending less time going to the hardware store or whatever, getting seed. It's just cheaper for me to say, this amount of acreage is always devoted to perennials and I'm gonna manage it this way And over time, I'm going to have a lot of tons produced throughout a year and I'm going to spend less time doing it because I'm selecting varieties or I'm managing it in a way that I'm not out there as much disturbing the property, spending my money, but I'm still getting a good crop or a good stand of whatever it may be. How do I do that? What do I do? Help me out here.
0: Yeah, One of the biggest things we see with this debate is I don't have a lot of equipment. I don't have much time at all to come and take care of it, spray it. Um, and I just want to have some a little area that's got great forage. And this is where we get into planting these perennials. And we say this very cautiously when it comes to planting perennials because that's kind of something that a lot of our invasives have have come from planting perennials. But when it comes to food plot perennials, we really try to promote clover clover multiple great. species and, of clover
1: and and then you can throw in other things i know they're not that are very uh, cheap they're very cheap i mean we're we're talking alfalfa you know that's not as cheap but having just a mix of that or having to throw in uh chicory you can you can do that and have great diversity within a perennial stand it doesn't or have to be a single can species or you step away
0: from that and say let's just plant in some millets or milos in these clover things just sure. to help Get something else growing, and we've said this in past podcasts, but as you plant legumes, and they're fixating nitrogen, there's there's nitrogen pulled from the air put into the soil, so there's got to be something planted to pull that nitrogen back out, or weeds are going to do that for you. That's why you see so much weed production
1: in clover stands, because... All that clovers operating, working, and putting nitrogen back into the soil. There's only a certain amount that that clover is going to take back out. So something's going to use it. It's not just going to go to waste, right? And a lot of times,
0: that's weeds. And that's why you see a lot of weeds four years in, three to four years into a clover stand. Is there's been a lot of nitrogen fixated over those three four years, and now there needs to be something to tap into that, pull it back out of the soil, and put right. it back in the form of forage. And if you don't do that, nature's going to do that for you. And that's probably going to be in a form of what you might call a weed. Correct. So you can do that a couple of different ways. In the fall, you can plant wheat. You need to plant something that's not already a legume or it's going to be speeding that process up even more. So in the fall, you're going to plant wheat, oats, some sort of rice, some
1: small cereal grain. And and it's not even a, a huge pound per acre. You don't have to plant a hundred pounds per acre. You can plant fifty, you can plant seventy five and and apply it, broadcast it to this uh clover stand and walk away. And those are very cheap. We're t- uh, we're talking twelve dollars for or thirteen bucks in our area for a fifty pound bag of wheat. Doesn't have to be anything special.
0: Nope. Just broadcast right for it. Out rain, there. Drill it. Broadcast a cult packet, whatever it is um and and you can have great forage now you've got forage in the form of clover and an oat or clover or, or wheat cereal rye um and then in the summer months, you can also plant like I mentioned earlier millet milo some very cheap seed um in that clover stand and a lot of people probably scratching their head why why would i
1: why would i plant a millet or sorghum in my clover does that even make sense i you know you probably never have seen that happen however let's let's just think about this for a second okay we're 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 creating a longevity in our perennial stand by taking out that excess nitrogen but you know what i love to see in in my clover plots in the spring and early summer i love to see turkeys Mm -hmm. like big wads of turkeys and let's say we've got that structure now that that area that and it's a great place to bug because that's clover brings that in and now i've got let's say some milo in there that's a great place for for young turkeys brutes to go in and hide they can escape they're going to be in that plot i don't know what the deal is but i feel like if i haven't seen a picture of that food plot on the side of a bag, then I don't believe in it or I don't want to plan it. Like, let's think outside the box and just say, hey, I know that clover is gonna produce excess nitrogen. Let me give something to it that that can provide more benefit and basically harness that extra nitrogen. It may not look it may look kinda of weird, but guess what? There's there's times of the year that it's gonna be extremely beneficial for that Milo to be within that clover. And that is getting broods through a really tough uh, vulnerable stage
0: try yeah, it one of the the mindset that we fight so much um, is when we plant something that's the only thing we want to see growing oh. it's like i if i plant white clovers some some strand of white clover i only want to see that in my food plot and if anything else comes <clears throat> out i'm gonna spray it know it. i'm gonna get it out there <clears throat> i would rather see a mix of red clover, white clover and ragweed growing than just straight white clover yeah. and so that's just a <laughs> uh it's it's just a it's a fight that we always see well, but. it's a different mindset
1: and yeah. and it's okay it's okay to have really like a kind of a the thought process of efficiency within a clover stand, but we can't deny the fact that a ragweed plant growing in clover can still be beneficial to wildlife. It may not be what we want to see. However, it can certainly be used to benefit wildlife. So, I don't I don't think that we should hate it as much as we do or we we think we do. And that's why, you know, throwing in a small grain during the fall time to harness that that excess nitrogen, you may limit the amount of, you know, summer annual weeds that you see. But a lot of times, a lot of times summer annual weeds or broadly, that deer quite frequently, frequently consumed during the summer, summertime. So, hey, instead of looking at it as necessarily a weed, let's think about what clover needs, those stands of clover, and think, okay, you know, that's just a little bit of deer food out there, extra deer food, cool, whatever. Nope. I, I don't want a clean, like, I don't want food plots necessary to always look like a lawn, like, it's not a lawn it's a food plot
0: Yeah, uh, and with that being said that kinda goes in the other way of uh, the other management technique that you can use to offset cost or or not spend as much money every single year and that's let's say you have three acres that's planting an acre and a half every year and letting the other acre and a half set fallow for that year so let's just say you plant a acre of corn and Two acres of soybeans. You can let that acre of corn sit fallow the next year, and let the ragweed and these other beneficial weeds. And that almost hurts to say that it hurts because It has
1: such a negative connotation with it. Yes. So it, it's mind-boggling that say people l- we are even listening other to this right now.
0: Native forages. Ooh, nice fill substitute. In. So for me, I look at a a field of. A fallow field of corn, and automatically there's ragweed, both species of ragweed there's uh pokeberry there's all kinds of other native weeds, ugh native forages filling in that deer love, and now it's also great cover for not only the deer but turkey poles, quail, everything doves uh, doves, yeah and so look at it from that of saying, okay, if I let it set fallow, I'm still going to have gr- pretty doggone good forage, but also I'm going to have a pretty good little area of cover, and it doesn't cost me any more money.
1: No, you can you can set aside a field. Let's let's just air quote this real quick and say take it out of production, basically saying you're not. Putting resources into that field for one year, but knowing that you're still going to get benefit because listen, these these things that are going to come back, even though you may not like the looks of them or the fact that there is a, again air quotes, weed growing in your food plot the deer will appreciate the turkeys will appreciate it the quail will appreciate it it is still a resource and a good resource for them to be able to use and i promise they will use it offset that cost know you're going to get benefit from it and put resources into the other you know acreage that you have save a little money If you're, if you're, you know, maybe it's a bad year in your business or whatever it may be, or you just don't have time, quite frankly, that's a huge thing. You don't have time to be able to do it. Don't fret. Don't worry about it. Know that, okay, I've got that happening there in that food plot. I'm okay with that. And you'll, you'll see if you sit there and monitor and don't freak out about the fact that there's some weeds growing in there that, hey, I'm good. That's a benefit to my wildlife. So, basically neglecting an area for a little bit kind of gives that old field aspect to it you know there's there's still a difference in old field management versus this but you will start to see the beginning stages of old field production in these areas and then the next year you're going to go in you're going to prepare the field like you normally would use herbicide in it and prepare for planting and if you do that right you put the right resources into that field and you and you prepare it and have a right um, whether it may be soybeans and you're you're doing two herbicide applications to control some weeds to get the best stand that year, or maybe it's you're playing the high diversity mixture where you have different things growing at different times, and you're never letting sunlight really get down to the um, the soil level to grow those weeds. you know you're doing a good job of continuing producing forage in that plot the next year. And don't worry about, you know, there might be some extra weed seed in that, that seed bed. If you, if you put your energy and resources into that field the next year, don't worry about it. You don't have to worry about it. It ain't
0: all bad that you see some ragweed growing in your field. No, that, that to me, rag, ragweed is dogged by so many people. And it's I, I understand why. I mean, it's, it certainly is a pain in late summer when it's pollinating. But the fact of the matter is, if we if there was any other species, let's just say I'll just say corn out there, corn pollinated during that time of the year, and it covered so many acres of the landscape, we would be hating it just as much as we hate ragweed, just because the fact that it clogs up our sinuses. Um, But ragweed's a fantastic thing to see growing. What's our next one, Matt? We've got logging. Oh, logging. This is a big one. To me, this is is kind of one of the biggest questions. When we go from real estate to consulting, everywhere we go, it's like, okay, for some reason, when we see a stand of timber, we automatically think, okay, is there timber value? And sometimes, a lot of times, there's not timber value, but in some instances, there can be a great value in a mature oak forest. Um, and if we're looking for ways, and I, I think we all should, I think we should all be looking for ways to make some income on our farm. I, I This was a debate I saw several weeks ago on, uh, I think it was Habitat Managers, of when it comes to timber management, this guy was, or I saw where people were really promoting hinge cutting, and what they were doing to their timber was just, Honestly, destroying the potential of ever having any income there because they were hinge-cutting oaks and pretty good-looking oaks, like young oaks, not not value as far as to basically value. the the next crop yeah. that could be there. And they were cutting it because they said they they weren't worried about making money; they were more worried about just improving the habitat. And to me, I was just it was very a it was a a negative mindset to me because you can make money in your timber, but still provide fantastic habitat for your wildlife.
1: You know, I, I think I think that there's oftentimes practices, you know, let's say hinge cutting or, or TSI gets associated with an age class or a size, like a diameter of trees versus a species of trees, if that makes sense. So instead of selecting or knowing tree ID or whatever it may be, Is saying, oh, well, that's not a big tree, doesn't have much potential, I'm going to hinge it, or I'm just going to cut it, or whatever whatever it may be. But it goes beyond that when we think of habitat and improving the habitat. Yeah, it may not be producing, you know, something right now at this current time, but if I were to let that one go, take out the very large tree that's next to, open up the canopy, I can let that tree flourish, and I can hinge the maples that are surrounding it, And now I have hinged maples. I have a young tree growing back basically to take up a lot of the space that the large mature oak did while still getting a lot of explosion of growth from the sunlight because the canopy was opened. So it's not always about, oh, it's a four-inch diameter tree. Let me just hinge
0: this joker. I'm I'm not going to see it make money in my lifetime. Let's just go ahead and hinge it. That's like complete opposite of the way we think is... Yeah, I think long-term
1: longevity um, of a forest stand and not just think here and now because there's others, there's alternatives to the here and now. I want production. You can still get that, but maybe maybe a selective cut in the timber is more of the route that you need to go versus hinging all the mid-story or the, the medium-sized trees. Think of it in that nature versus I'm just going to get in there and just— go to town. Yeah. Let's think long term.
0: Uneven age ma- uneven age timber management. And that kind of goes with when I had Grandpa on the podcast a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago now. He talked about how the the farmers, the land, the landowners would gradually harvest the timber themselves and haul it off to sell it. So that just over time there was always trees being cut, so there was always sunlight hitting the forest floor, so there was always these thickets or areas of of growth, native vegetation growing in the timber. Now we don't have that a lot. It's either it's cut like crazy or it's not cut at all. And, and this whole uneven age timber management or selective cut, as you said, would be a fantastic way to make some money but also provide more cover and forage for the wildlife. We talked in a couple podcasts ago about... The amount of forage available in closed canopy mature timber versus young forest, and the and the data suggests that there's a huge difference in forage. Basically, it's a buffet versus nothing, um, <laughs> and so we definitely want to consider the benefits of managing timber. Now, let's say there's not a uh, there's not a lot of timber value there. But you still have closed canopy forests. What could you do? That's when you start having to look at TSI, and and that, when we mention TSI, oftentimes that kind of and I see this on social media, but it gets correlated with income-related projects. And TSI is only so you can make money on your timber down the road. That's if if you're thinking that. Try to hear me out. And That's not how we're looking at it. We're looking at it as how can we make income down the road but also remove these trees that aren't of any value. And let's let the healthier trees, so the trees that are going to be healthier and have more income, let's let them flourish while the trees that are twisted up, maybe they're already getting choked out due to competition. Let's go ahead and remove those and let whatever's below them grow better. And that may be... Early secessional or some other type of plant that can provide more forage or cover for the wildlife. So TSI is just looking at a way we can make money down the road, but also thin out all the competition. And really, if
1: you've got a chainsaw, the income that or the the money you have to put into making a difference is gas and oil for that joker.
0: Or a hatchet and a bottle of herbicide and ibuprofen for your elbow after you're swinging that hatchet all day. That's it. You have to get Tommy John surgery after that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why I think I'm not sure where it's at in your notes, but I know it's on there is if we're looking at a huge project or or, or, let's just say it's 50 acres and it's all timber and there's no chance of having food plots. This is where you really need to focus on prioritizing certain areas and starting there first, take a two acre South facing slope and say, okay, this is where I'm going to start. I know I can knock this out in a day, I'm going to go in there and every tree that's not providing any income now or down the road, I'm going to go ahead and cut it or hinge it or hack and squirt and remove it and let some sort of native vegetation below on the forest floor take over.
1: And I think the important thing right there from a management and certainly a hunting benefit is the I'm either going to cut it, I'm either going to hinge it, or I'm going to hack it. And oh, and one point, other thing. I'm going to let it stay. Ooh. Okay, there's four different things, four decisions that you need to make before you get to every single stem you see. That What, what am I going to do with this tree? And, and that decision is based off of tree species, age, where it's at within this two-acre plot, and what you want, what the goals are down the road. I want those two-acre highly managed areas to be productive for bedding cover and for long-term value of the property and that's a decision that you have to make but what you those four options allow you to do or create within those areas is diversity that uneven age regeneration and you're producing cover now at the ground level and that might be in the in the form of Uh, brambles that come back. That might be the form of grasses that come back. Or it could be a re-sprout, a stump sprout, from a maple tree that you decided to cut and actually not use herbicide on because you wanted the additional forage and structure within the two acres.
0: Or you just forgot to put herbicide on it. Or
1: you walked away accidentally. (laughs) Yeah, or your elbow was hurting too bad and you had to walk back to the house. Whatever it may be. But having those options is extreme benefit to those areas. You know, you don't want... I don't say you don't want to, or you could save time and money by just hacking a tree versus cutting it down, or whatever it may be. But you know that's another podcast I think that we need to do is talk about. Hey, these are when we're creating bedding areas. A lot of times, what we see are these species. Here's what we would do in the situation: we would cut it, we would hack it, we would walk away. Mm-hmm. One, the two, or three, or four, whatever it may be. We'll cover that one day.
0: One day. We have a long list of topics to cover. (laughs) That's okay. Uh, That's good. Plenty of content for years to come. Um, For me, I think we pretty well covered TSI, but one of the things, you said it earlier, kind of gets me going, is whenever we talk about TSI and, okay, well, it's not going to provide, this tree is never going to provide any income to me, that's a pretty selfish thing to say or think because... We like to think about it, okay now what's what's most beneficial to this land right now, and what's most beneficial to future generations? So if I let a young white oak grow and express itself and remove the competition around it um let's say it's a young white oak that's a good straight good looking tree, but it's only six inch d b h um and there's a bunch of maples and hickories around it, and I remove those. I'm I'm never going to see that thing make money, but maybe my kids or grandkids will, or something happens, let's hope doesn't, but somebody else owns the farm, um, and they're going to make income off that. That's just what, to me, I think of land management as not managing the land myself. And I don't forget who quoted this, but it's look at the land as being borrowed for from our children. I think it was Roosevelt. Was it? I think so. And anyway, that's kind of the way we want to look at it is, yeah, sure, it's not going to provide any income to me, but it may for somebody one day. Well, and and that's a that's
1: an incredible point and and one that should be thought before you go in and start doing these practices. But you know, here's the other thing is you're 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 creating food and and when we're talking about cost saving, cost-effective management, you know, the input maybe a chainsaw but you can use that for many many years but you're you're putting food on your landscape and not really having to pay much for it like now if you have this food throughout your property think about the money you'd have to save you could save um basically not having to put money out for bait piles you know that's a that's a huge um cost cost for for a property if you if you're a person who puts that out um for months throughout a year or or every month during the year. Um you can let your property produce the forage and save that money. Uh, that's a huge, huge possibility for you. Um and you maybe have to have less food plots. You know, that's another option. If you have if you have food throughout your entire landscape, those food plots during the certain months of the year could be high, high, high quality forage and great place to congregate deer, that's going to improve your hunting versus having food plots spread throughout your entire place.
0: That that kind of goes, I don't know where it's at on your notes, but food plots, crop fields, bait piles aren't the only way you can provide food for your wildlife. No, 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 no. And I think that's, for some reason, when you look at a property dealing with real estate and consulting, Matt and I, Um, one of the biggest questions is, is there any flat ground? Is there any bottom ground that I can get some food on there? Well, a lot of times those two things increase the price of the property. And so if you're on a budget trying to buy land, um, sometimes you got to look at the rougher stuff and it's going to be more affordable, but then you can find other ways to provide food for sure. For sure you can. One one other one we we kind of, I think we accidentally skipped
1: over a little bit on the whole sharecropping um, when we talked about food plots and fields and such like that. There's the option to lease that out if you've got open ground. Yeah, contact a local farmer, get some revenue, get whatever it may be. There's some areas of the country that are getting 100, 200 dollars per acre. You know that that's ideal crop ground, but you know even if you get if you've got a five acre field and you're getting 30 bucks an acre for it. Cool man. Use that somewhere else yeah. on the property. That's income that you would otherwise not have. And and trust me when I say this, the if you have the right farmer in place and, and you've you've done the interview process, you you've looked through some people and you've selected a guy He's the best guy in the neighborhood. Hopefully he's making the decision, you know, his goal is to get the highest yield off of that acreage he can. So hopefully he's going to be making the right decisions, you know, thinking of soil management, thinking of of high crop yields, you know, putting the right amendments in, doing the right practices, and quite frankly, he's got the best equipment to be able to do that and he's probably going to do a better job of making food on that property versus, you know, possibly your food plot um techniques or your 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 attempts that's not a dig that's just the, the, the he, he'd do a better job than us so use that to your advantage and you know maybe it's okay he's gonna pay me 180 dollars, and i'm gonna pay him to leave some some uh crops standing you know put that money back into the property and use that as a food resource uh it's it's awesome as as gay brown says
0: sign the back of the check not the front that's it and this is right in our wheelhouse with when you think about the prairie hollow property there's a couple 20 plus acre fields that, that we could devote to let's make that all standing corn that gets pretty doggone expensive
1: it's time consuming too to be able to plant that to be able to treat that acreage right throughout entire you know we travel a lot. Most people who have hunting properties, they work for a living, man.
0: Yeah. And so what we do is we rent out the the 20 plus acre fields to a local farmer and he plants corn. And then he may occasionally leave. Let's just say he usually the plan is to cut it for silage and then return and plant some sort of forage uh, cover crop for the winter months. So Basically, then we get a food plot. But in certain years, he's he's picked the corn, and there's a lot of spilled grain, and then he plants a wheat or a, another type of um, forage for the for the fall or cover crop. So we still get
1: food. You get food, and you get an income off of that acreage, and that makes the the, the landowner of the lease happy.
0: That's a good thing. Yeah fantastic thing it makes us happy we get to hunt it and it's still a great attraction to uh, an area of the farm and i mean a big attraction 20 plus acre in certain areas pretty doggone good Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you can and the other options let's just say you're not in an in an area where there's a lot of crop if you have a big pasture let's just say you have no cows on your farm and so you just lease out the hay rights and so they cut this fescue field and they cut it, get some hay off of it, and then the rest of the year it just sets and it's just a a pasture or a, hay, a field that gets cut so it's pretty short during the fall. Another thing you can do is find a farmer who would want to plant that in alfalfa. Now we have something that you went from fescue, which didn't provide any forage and not very good cover, to now you plant alfalfa, you're still making money but also providing forage for the wildlife. This is a, a
1: extremely real-life practice. We were just on property last week. We talked about it in the podcast. And those landowners are going to be doing that. They've got orchard grass and fescue in, in, in several of their fields, and they're going to be actively converting that into alfalfa. And they're going to get more. They, don't, they actually don't sell their alfalfa or their their hay. They have horses and livestock. However, if they were to do so, you would get more money per bale off of alfalfa than you would the other hay, <clears throat> excuse me. And you'd probably get an extra cutting or two in those areas throughout the entire year. So I don't know. For me, it, it's, it's a win win. I deer, if you've ever hunted deer over or close to alfalfa fields, you know the power, the attraction and now we're saying, hey, there's there's a potential for for more income, if you've got a guy, a farmer who's gonna you know foot the bill and 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 put that, convert that to alfalfa, shake his hand, sign the deal, write up a nice contract, and say, thank you, sir. That's an awesome opportunity for your property
0: and the wildlife on your property. An- another option with that would be, put it into crops, let some farmer plant it in corn or soybeans, and you keep the data on that for three years or five years or however however long it is, keep it in crops to where when that's finished, you can enter that into a government program like CRP and convert it back to a more beneficial bedding area.
1: Yeah, you, you may find that, you know what, that portion of the property, that field... If I think about this, it, I could improve my hunting by actually taking it out of crops. Now that it's been a crop for three years, and if I have bedding there, then this bottleneck's going to improve, or this food plot over here is going to have much more activity. Or it might be a, a south-facing slope on a field. I'm going to put that into CRP. You just have you have a lot
0: you have a lot of options. Basically, what we're saying. Or you um, take the income you've made off of the leasing out the the ground to crops, mm-hmm. and you've used that money to create more openings in your timber, yeah. and then you have food plots, and you've taken the money from that, and you continue to improve to, to where you have food plots in specific areas, and now you've converted the crop field, the original crop field, after this certain amount of years back to a bedding area.
1: You know, the possibilities are endless is basically what we're saying, and it's not just a clear-cut, hey, this is the way I have to do, I have to front, front the money up front, you know, year one at a property when I really want to start doing some habitat. You know, that's not necessarily the case. And there's options. And don't get yourself stuck in a mindset where, well, it's either this or that, and I'm, you know, stuck in a rut. Like, you, there's options. And cost-saving options. And those are the ones that I like. Um. So what's it? Oh, we haven't talked yet about prescribed fire i was hoping
0: you were going to go there when you look at what's the biggest bang for your buck how can i improve my entire farm or a big check section i almost combined the two but a big section of my land how can i improve it well one of the biggest ways is prescribed fire when you look at the amount of improvement across your landscape With that's very cost effective, prescribed fire is going to be hard to beat. And so you can burn 100 acres or 200 acres in a section in one day and now have this huge shot of green growth, green forage for the wildlife and also help stimulate more early secessional habitat um, just by doing a prescribed fire. Now, of course... You want to make sure you have insurance on the farm or insurance for your lease, whatever it is, before you do something like that. You're trained professionals or you've, you've gone through the class and you've gathered some buddies up and you're all going to burn together. It's important that you have that. Um, but it's also, I'm trying to look through here my my notes, but whenever you look at prescribed fire, it's always going to be more beneficial in an area that's not completely closed canopy forest. I feel like we've talked about this a lot and I think it's very important, but people a lot of times talk about prescribed fire and how beneficial it is. But if you're in a closed canopy forest, you're only going to be so, you're kind of limited on how beneficial it can really be. So that's why it's important to continue the TSI, open up that canopy, and then do prescribed fire because you're going to have a lot better uh, regeneration um in those areas and a lot more to burn baby a lot more to burn yeah for sure so prescribed fire is a very cost effective way to improve the entire landscape large scale oh it's it's a
1: huge improvement i i think about you know we we often talk about like the importance or the the emphasis a lot of people put on on food plots and yes you get a, a high tonnage per acre on those areas but really it's it's a very small fraction of a property typically and and prescribed fire can can over, you're, you're, just, you're just treating, let's say, you're, you're bringing attention to so many more acres on a property and, and the return is so huge, so yeah. huge on a place. And I
0: think, let's just use my farm, for example, 282 acres. Um, only six of that is food plots. Mm-hmm. But with our burn units, we are going to burn probably almost 75, 80 acres every year. It's going to have great forage. And then, so every year, so even though it's not, one area's not burned that year, it was burned the year prior, and it still has a lot of great regeneration growing there. Mm -hmm. So that's something to really consider when you're trying to get the biggest bang for your buck and you're managing on a budget. Now, all that being said, there's a lot of things we mentioned. There are government programs to help offset costs for that. Prescribed fire is one of the biggest ones. So if you go in and you sign up for prescribed fire, there's a lot of, uh, there's a good chance you can get government programs and help offset costs for that.
1: Yes, there's paperwork. Yes, there's some things that you have to follow. However, put the property first. Think of the benefit that it's going to have on that property. You know, you can get paid for putting in fire lines like you can use for your road access, you know, property access. That's a huge benefit. And you also get paid to do that. And then you get paid to burn or, or an extreme large portion of that, that cost is, is cost shared. There's, you know, really when you think about it and you utilize those programs that are available to you, you can do a huge amount of work for, for little expenses out of your pocket. And, and I know there, there I don't know, there's that negative connotation. I think with government programs signing up for, for having, you know, them government folks on your property. But think outside the box a little bit and, and consider it. It's not for everyone, but there it is an option saying, hey, here are the possibilities. Here's what it would look if we do this amount of acreage every single year. Really, I can handle that number, mm-hmm.
0: you know? Yeah. And so in a nutshell, when we're talking about managing land, managing property on a budget, um, ways that you can make income. Renting out crops, so renting out the open ground to a farmer um, and letting him plant some sort of crops there, that's just putting money in your pocket. And probably if he's planting soybeans or alfalfa, that's also forage for the wildlife. Or if it's corn, it'll be great forage later on after it matures. Um, Any spill grain or areas that he doesn't hit with the combine, that's food for your wildlife.
1: And as you are renting out the crops, consider... Consider the the possibilities of cover crops there too mm-hmm. on a property, having that food resource during the fall month and improving soil health. Put that in the Huge contract. Benefit. Bingo! I Put- think I'd love to start seeing more people do that, requesting or or writing in the, in the contract. Hey, if you're gonna if you're gonna basically rent the crops from me on my property, I need to see you you putting your best foot forward and and basically planting a cover crop in these fields afterwards. Here are my concerns. Here's why.
0: Will you do this? The next thing to provide income is timber harvest. If there's any timber value on the property, go in there and harvest some trees. Put that money in your pocket or put it towards other projects on the farm. Um, that's a that's a huge way in timber country to make money on your land. Other one, of course, as we just prior mentioned, government programs. That's another way to make some income or help greatly um, remove the initial cost or sticker price on doing some of these big management practices: prescribed fire, TSI, um, anything like that. Real, real quick, I I'm going to share Laddie's
1: example. Laddie's a landowner from Delaware that we went to, and and he, for the past 15, 16 years, has utilized government programs to not only convert his property from open fields, open crop fields in the year 2000 to Wildlife Mecca. Um, He's done that through government programs and has done a lot of the work himself and been able to basically feed himself off that money. But he's completely changed that property, the look of the property, by utilizing the opportunities that these government programs have offered him and the property. It's an amazing transformation a great story.
0: I, I love it. I think it's awesome. Um, I think we're out of time. We are wrapping things up. So anyway, uh, with that being said, all that being said, if this is stuff you like, of course, please go give us a review or a like or share it. Um, also, if you have any questions on c- consultation or would like our opinion on your farm, give us an email at uh,
1: info, info at Land Legacy Legacy dot TV. tv.
0: Yeah, if you like that?
1: Ooh, simultaneous twinning. Don't ever say that again.
0: And so, he likes, likes um, to do that. I think, oh, and also, if you're interested in real estate, um, we're also real estate agents. So, bingo. If you're thinking about buying a property or selling your property, give us a shout and uh, shoot us an email, and uh, we'll help you any way we can. And uh, anyway, Matt, you got anything else to add? Cost effective habitat
1: management. I think one of the most underrated things people can do like it's they're almost, not utilizing people Ugh. don't
0: talk about it, i think because it's like I it's like talking about your bank account yeah but i think everybody is concerned about it so it's definitely something that we need to talk about hey so i, I like
1: minimal inputs with great return that's what we talked about today that can make a property greatly improve itself think outside the box that's all i got
0: all right sounds good
1: we'll catch you guys next time see ya Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering on the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram.
0: Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God?